Welcome to the Brett Boone Podcast as we explore the mind of former MLB All-Star, Silver Slugger, and Gold Glove winner Brett Boone as he sits down with his friends from the world of professional sports. On this episode of the Boone Podcast, Brett looks back at his favorite moments of the Boone Podcast in 2020. All right, let's do this! And now, here's your host, Brett Boone. Welcome to the Boone Podcast, and uh, this is a special podcast. We're recapping 2020. And uh, I went into this podcast and really not knowing what to expect. And I've been pleasantly surprised with a lot of the guests we have. And if you missed any, we're going to recover them for you right now. We start off with probably the best player I ever played with, Ken Griffey Jr. On his take on baseball versus the other big sports. Like I said, you know, the, this game is is ups and downs all year. Um. Best player, I don't have to let you play. So you, you can't be too high on yourself. You can't get too low on yourself. But having a dad, like I said, we had a dad that, that you can see how they act when they come home. You know, you know, your dad's somewhat like mine. You know, if you went 4 for 4, 0 for 4, you couldn't tell by if you came, they came home and said, hey, dad, I want to go play catch. They'd be like, okay, let's play catch. Let's do something. Because it ain't our fault that he had a bad day at work. Um, so those are the things that I learned from pops about, you know, this game, but this game is always going to humble people. And now we move on to an umpire, an umpire, pretty controversial umpire. It's Joe West, but I think this podcast really shows a different side, a sweeter side to Joe. Here he is. Who holds the umpires accountable? If I'm a player and, I, and I'm not doing my job, I yep. get released. They don't pick up my contract. Who holds? Who holds? Well, the, the commissioner's office grades every umpire on every pitch, every play that he has. It's it's one of those things where uh, if you work home plate and your score is 97, well, that's uh, above average, uh, and it's uh, extremely good. You, that means that out of every hundred pitches, you got 97 of them right. And yet they want you to be perfect. You know, Dick Stello told me the first week I was in the big leagues, he says, uh, yeah, you got to be perfect the first day and get better. (laughs) So, uh, and, and you know what? Uh, Nobody, no umpire likes to miss any pitch or play. They want to, they try to, they strive to be as perfect as they can and no amount of work or uh, whatever you, you do to try to get better is going to make you perfect. And, and that's the, a crazy thing about this. As I said, it's not a perfect game, but it's typically American. Lou Pinella, my all-time favorite manager. Always interesting catching up with Lou, and this time didn't disappoint. Here he is. Today's player is is probably not as hard-nosed as a whole as the players when I played, or even when you played, Brett. Uh, today, you know, the, the players uh, are a little more pampered. I don't think the manager uh, uh, can be like, I remember when I first played for Billy Martin, you know, he, he demanded and, and he was tough, but we enjoy playing for him. And I sort of adopted that style. Uh, but I'll tell you what, I, I thought I was always very fair with the players. I put the people on the field that deserve to play, but today's player really is uh, they've changed. It's changed so much. Uh, you know, you don't see too many stolen bases anymore. You don't see many hit and runs. You certainly don't see many bunts. 
everything that is is a home run ball. And I know you 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 in a way were a, a prolific home run hitter as a second baseman, but you still hit close to 300. And you didn't strike out all that much today. The hitters strike out a heck of a lot, and they want to launch the ball, and 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 they do. They're strong and they're physical. But I'll tell you the truth. I like the way the game was played a few years back more than I do the way it's played today. One of my real good friends, Trevor Hoffman, he stopped by the Boone podcast and we got to talk about his iconic changeup. A lot of people have great changeup, but but Hoffie's is just a little bit different and it quite just never gets to home plate as much as we wait on it. How did you come up with this? The pitch came around. I, I used a regular circle change. Larry Barnett uh, Sr. was a guy that uh, was in the Reds organization a long, long time. I know you know him, Brett, and your, your, your dad knows him. Um, and he, I was actually signed by his son, Jeff Barton. He ran a camp in uh, Cypress Junior College in the offseason when I was trying to make a transition to pitching from hitting and showed me the circle change. And it was a, it was a nice pitch. I kind of took to it. I figured it out rather quick, but it didn't have this big differential that I was looking for. It was probably eight, nine miles an hour different. And when I had a teammate by the name of Donnie Elliott come along and show me his grip on what he was trying to do with the, the changeup for him, uh, it was kind of pinch the seam rather than have the circle around the horseshoe, pinch the seam. It, it kind of moved the ball into my hand into a, a more comfortable position, we'll say. And I got a few more miles an hour off of the pitch, and then I morphed it into more of a palm ball, and that's when I started to see some big differentials between my fastball and the changeup. I was, I was anywhere from 13 to 15, 17-mile-an-hour difference, and honestly, that, that's, that's what made the pitch really, really good. Jeff Bagwell, one of the best all-around players of my generation. I sat down with Jeff, and we talked about his stance – it was a lot different than most, but it was pretty effective. Your stance, where'd it come from? Yeah. Well, <laughs> um, let's let's talk about sure. that. <laughs> I used to I used to mess with my even when I was a kid. My Cardi Sempsky was my favorite player, and he used to mess with his stance all the time. But he was left-handed, so I tried to do it from the right side. And then as I got older, I loved what Don Mattingly did, and I kind of stood up a little bit and kind of squatted before the pitch came, and I would come out of it a lot. And that's why I, I hit all these balls with topspin. Um, and so I hit a lot of doubles, but I didn't hit a lot of home runs. I get to the big leagues. I'm messing around with my stuff. We're in San Diego in the end of 93, I believe. And I asked Tony Gwynn for a bat, and Tony Gwynn, gave me a bag, which I still have here, that says, bags, keep the same stance. And I was like, wow, okay. So I said, okay, Tony Gwynn gave it to me. Let me see what Tony Gwynn does. So he kind of spreads out a little bit just to keep his head still. So I said, okay, I'll try that. So with a little bit of tinkering, and I came in 94, and that's when I started doing that. Well, I didn't go down, and I just tried to keep my – and my whole focus was keep your head still, stay down. If I stay down, that means I won't come up. I won't hit with topspin. And then I started to get a lot of backspin on the ball. Hence, that's where my power came from. I always had power, but I just didn't know how to use it. Um, But I figured Tony Gwynn had the best. But the problem was, if you look on tape, my hands drop and my foot actually steps backwards a little bit. And I have no clue how that happened. So 
it kind of worked, you know, and, and I'm, I'm one of those dudes that I'm like a half empty guy because <clears throat> it's so freaking hard to hit that I'm always kind of trying to tinker with something with my hands so they wouldn't drop as much, but that was what I got. And that's what I went out there with. Adrian Beltre stopped by the podcast. Not too many people ask the umpire to check their swing on a check swing. See how he sees it. When I first come up in the big league, you know, you know, uh, the umpires normally dump the kids in the rookies. And uh, for some reason, I had always a kind of more violent upper body when I checked my swing. So it appeared that I actually swung, but actually my bat never crossed the strike zone or the, you know, so-called, you know, uh, check area. So for, for some reason, they always call those uh those uh, check swings on me strikes. So I'm like, and I will go back to the video and I go, I will check and I see that it wasn't even close. But yet I see my shoulder kind of make it appear like I swung. So I noticed that obviously the first base umpire had better view uh, the, the, uh, the home play umpire. So I wanted to actually check before he, the home play umpire make the decision to call it. I want to make sure that he checked with the first uh, base umpire so I can actually I get a chance with it. So that's how everything started. So I want to make sure that, you know, I get a fair, a fair look for the first base umpire and he would determine if I swan or not. So that's how it started. So just be, after that, I became a habit. So I just did it all the time. Edgar Martinez, one of my best friends in the game. We got to play together for five years. I learned a lot from Edgar. And he dropped by the podcast to talk about what it's like to be a full-time DH. When did it come time when the manager called you in or the organization and said, Edgar, we're going to make you, we're thinking about making you a full-time DH. What year was that? That was, um, well, 93. That was the year that I pulled my hamstring. Right. So 90, and and uh, 90, Mike Blowers was playing third. Yes. Yeah. So... Uh, I only played that that year. I only played um, 42 games, and the majority they were the age, right? So, 94, we have a short season with the uh, um, with the, the strikes. So I kind of played third base, DH. It's still kind of nursing my hamstring, and. Um, I believe it was a, um, a mid-season or early 95, I think it was, that Lou talked to me about it and said, I think uh, we wanted to, to be uh, at the age. Um, we need you on the field, and uh, we need your back every day. So I did have a hard time with that. Obviously, I didn't say anything to, to Lou, but I had a hard time with that uh, transition. Albert Pujols, one of the best hitters ever to play this game. I knew him as a young pup. He came into the game in 2001. I got a chance to sit down with him and ask him about his 20 years in the game. Give me an overview of your 20 years. Well, buddy, it's, uh, it's obviously a different era that we are playing right now than what we play, you know, back in 2001 when I got to the big leagues. But I think for me, one of those things that, that I always done is, you know, uh, I do my own scouting. I, I, you know, I follow a little bit of what they give me to the reporting all that. But I think at the end of the day, 
as a hitter, as you know, you did a, you know, one of the things that you did great was that. I mean, you did your homework, and that's why you had the success that you had. And I believe that new things are always great, but I think, you know, with the success that I have, I thank God first for giving me the ability and the talent to to be able to perform at this level and, and be consistent with it. You know, obviously my best year were, were in St. Louis and then my download year here with the Angels now <clears throat> because through injuries, you know, I mean, the pace rate that I had in St. Louis from 2001 to 2011 was pretty, <clears throat> pretty crazy. You know, I averaged 42 homers, like 100. 27 RBI and like 332 buying average, something like that. It's just, it's crazy. You know, people, I always tell people, I'm like, if I would have done that the rest of my career, I mean, they, they call me the machine, but I'm not a machine, you know, it would have been, <laughs> you know, something unbelievable. But I, I think what I see now, man, is just new generation talent, you know, the talent is unbelievable, you know, it's, uh, hitting is tough right now, you know, you're facing, Every three or four innings, you're facing a new guy. If it started out of there, you know, you're facing uh, two or three different guys out of the bullpen that you don't see much, uh, you know, unless they're, they're in, in the division <clears throat> that you play in. So definitely a different era, uh, stuff that you had to always, you know, make an adjustment. And, and, I'm, and I have been able to make that adjustment. And, you know, I got one more year left in my contract. I, I want to honor. I want to stay healthy and and see where we go from there. Tony Larusa, he's back. He was kind enough to drop by the Boone podcast. He would only come on this podcast. He hasn't done any more interviews, but he's back on the field with the White Sox. He's talking about his transition from old school to the new school. Here's what he had to say. How long do you want to do this? I know you see this team. It's an exciting team, this, this young White Sox team. How long do you want to do this? Can you win again? Well, uh, it, the, the question is, can we win again? Uh, can't, can't, you know, what right. I'm going to do is I'm, I've always felt the same way. You know, it, it's if you the coaching staff and it includes the manager. Our, our responsibility is to put the guys in a place position to win the game. And when they win, it's because they played and they did it. But we did have a value, you know, a pitching coach, a hitting coach, you know, manager, base running coach, defensive coach. Well, you know, there's ways that you can – you know, you can improve the club or tweak guys to where they get in a good place. And so that the game is won because they took an ad batter and made a play. And, uh, you know, my whole attitude, and here again, it's one of those things people say, well, after you're saying that, well, people that know me know I meant it. My whole career was about the, the year we were playing, and I didn't care. You know, if I had a three-year contract, it wasn't about I had security for three years. I always felt that at the end of the year, uh, I had to have earned the owner and the general manager and the players believing that I should be the guy for next year. And that's exactly I'm, my job this year is to take it one day at a time and, and earn the respect and trust. And when we get to the end, hopefully it's, you know, the plan is we got to get to October and then you get into that fun time. Uh, and then we'll see if uh, they want me to come back. We'll see. Andrew Jones, arguably the greatest center fielder of all time. I got a chance to play with Andrew in 1999 and, and witnessed him in center field for a year. I saw Bobby Cox said, Willie Mays got nothing on this guy. Here's what he had to say about playing center field. Talk to me a little bit about how you played center field. To be honest with you, back in the day, we didn't have that much of a scout report. We, you know, we have to make our own adjustments as 
what we see, what what our pitcher have today. You know, you know, you 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 have to, what how are we gonna attack the hitter? Um, but you have to have your own adjustment as when it's two strikes or when it's you know when he's ahead or when he's behind the count. You just move yourself and put yourself in the right position. You know, I'm sure you did it when you were playing second base to get a better range where you have ideas. Say, I think this guy's going to pull the ball. So I will cheat a little bit, but it will be that obvious that you're going to see me move. So you just move yourself. You know, you, you basically, you work hard at it, first of all. You do your practice. You do your work that you need to do. Started from sprint training. You go there. You get life, 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 um, life, um, BP, and you just say, today I'm going to play really shallow. Tomorrow I'm gonna play deep and see I work on the on 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 the wall, the feeling of the wall or whatever, coming in or going back. So everything starts with training, then you continue to do it in in the season. And um, you know, you 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 learn the hitters, you learn you learn the league, and you you learn your pitchers. And that's how I'm, I I made I made made it be as easy as I could have made it for myself. Greg Maddox. Um... I faced a lot of great pitchers, probably the best I've ever seen. Uh, Mad Dog stops by the podcast and he breaks it down for you. He tells about the pitchers of yesteryear, the pitchers of today. Real interesting takes. What do you see yeah. about the current game that you like that you don't like? Well, stuff is up. I mean, the pitchers they actually, they, I mean, they throw better. They throw harder. They they got they got better breaking balls. Uh, you know, location. You know, they got the high strike now, so you're able to pitch up. You know, we got we got an inch or two off the plate when we played. And, you know, we tried to pitch on the corner or if, you know, if we can just miss the corner and get the call, that was great. Uh, we never got that high strike that you see today. I mean, you're seeing belt-high breaking balls being called for strikes, and you're like going, wow. I mean, it must be nice to get that high strike. It'd be, that's a tough pitch to hit as well, no matter how hard you throw. Uh, but I see the biggest difference for me is, you know, we tried to keep the ball in front of the outfield. You know, I don't care if I give up a single. If the ball stays in front of the outfield, whoever keeps the ball in front of the outfield best is going to win. Okay. And that, and that holds true today as well when you watch the games on TV. And, uh, you know, that was always my biggest thing. Keep the ball in front of the outfield. And today, the pitchers today, it's like, I got to make a miss. You know, it's swing and miss. I need to pitch up. I need to pitch out of the zone. You know, I'll try to get strike one or two down, you know, with a breaking ball or a low fastball for a called strike. But, you know, once I get strike one, I'm going to start going out of the zone to see if I can't get these guys to chase. And, you know, I think that's why you see the uh, pitch counts are higher, you know, today than they were back then. And, uh, you know, right now it's a swing and miss game. We got to make a miss and, you know, back when we were playing, it was, we got Andrew Jones and Raphael for call. Let's make him hit it at him. You know, we'll get out of this thing quick. Tory Hunter stops by the podcast. One of the greatest to ever do it. They called him Spider-Man. He robbed a lot of homers, but he never robbed me. Here's Tory. Who took you under their wing and, and kind of taught you the ropes? Man, it's, it's crazy because, uh, from you know, 93 to like 2007, you know, I had a lot of guys that kind of helped me out. A guy by the name of Jerry White, you know, he played the major leagues nine years, you know, in the 80s, 70s and 80s. But he taught me a lot of different things. And Al Newman and 
you know, um, um, Shaquille O'Brew, uh, Tony Oliva, Rod Carew. I mean, I, I had so many guys that imparted in me, but the two guys that, that just helped me change my mindset was uh, Paul Molitor and Kirby Puckett. You know, they kind of just talked to me about financial literacy. They talked to me about um, investing. They talked to me about my marriage. They talked to me how to carry myself. You know, not just about baseball. You know they did that. But they, they, they showed me how to be a man, you know, and how to, you know, respect others and respect authority and different things like that, but also just enjoy yourself and have fun. They taught me not to play for the applause. You know, you play for the applause and then they boo you. Your emotions go up and down. They said, focus on the pitcher, focus on the game, focus on your teammate when you're playing the game. It was hard to do when I first started, but just by those guys giving me uh, that advice and and sharpening me, um, it kind of, it took me a long way. You know, there's no way I played 19 years in the major leagues if it wasn't for those, those two guys right there that really imparted to me to listen, and I was able to listen to other guys and other teammates. And when you came over, I listened to some of the things you said. And, you know, and I, I always had an open mind. I wasn't attached to anything. I was open to everything. Paul Molitor. I was lucky enough to call my hitting coach in 2004. Uh, one of the best hitters of his generation. I asked Paulie, how do you get 225 hits when you're 39 years old? But I was looking and I'm thinking, all right, 39 years old. Let's see how he did. You got 225 hits. <laughs> and I think you might have turned 40 that year. The year I came back here, someone asked me in spring training about getting the 3,000 hits because I think I needed like 211. And I said, well, if I play two more years, I think I can get there. And then that year I had 225 hits and I was able to get there in September. So, you know, you, when the year you're, you know, you play until you're 40, you're not sure what's going to happen. But, but thankfully, I think I played in like almost every game. I might have missed one that whole year. And, you know, we were fairly competitive con, con, considering we had lost Puckett in spring training. And, you know, I think we hung around 500, which was, which was decent for that team trying to turn it around. But yeah, you know, when I, when I, hit 280 my last year. You know what? I don't know about you, Booney, but my measuring stick was there was a lot more days that I, that I just wasn't looking forward to going to work. And, you know, when it becomes not enjoyable, I was lucky enough to play 21 years into my, until I was 42. I did have some interest from a couple of clubs to stick around for one more year, but, um, you know, you, you just kind of know when the time's right in your heart. Trevor Bauer, one of the most unique players I got to interview on this podcast. He's coming off a Cy Young, and he's coming off a 60-game season. We haven't seen that in baseball, I think, forever. He kind of gives his take on what it was like to play during the COVID era. Now that we got through the 60-game schedule and, and the Dodgers are world champs, how did it go? It was okay. Um, I, it was not having fans at the stadium sucked. I, I, I think that that's the biggest the annoyance of like going through the testing and the protocols and whatever as players like, look, this is our job. Like this, this is what it takes to get the, to get the job done this year. Like this is what we have to do. So that, that stuff I don't mind, but you know, just not having fans of the stadium. And I, I fully understand why obviously, but that just, it's such a, it's such a huge part of the game that you don't really realize because it's just always there, you know, and it's always, you just get used to it. And then, uh, but the, the the rhythm of the game, the energy, the momentum swings, uh, especially in playoff baseball, like the playoffs did not feel like playoffs this year. Like it, at no point did it feel like the moment did not feel any bigger than 
regular season, you know, because there's no fans, there's no energy. You're not getting the introductions on the line. The, the crowd's going nuts. You know, you got hundreds and thousands of people outside the stadium as you show up. They're banging on the bus on the road, like all these different things. Um, so that that sucked. I, I hope that we were able to have full capacity and have fans back in the stadium next year. But uh, overall, I think it went, you know, it went it went well. Jim Tomey. One of the few guys in this game that can talk about what it's like to hit 600 homers. One of the nicest guys in the game. And I got to ask him what it was like to reach that milestone. You got into that 600 club. Were you always a home run hitter in the minor leagues? Or is that something that came as you became a big leaguer? No, I was not. I was not a home run hitter. I was was brought up that you hit the ball gap to gap. Okay. And, and I go back to Charlie Manuel on this because Charlie was our hitting instructor in Cleveland. And one of the things Charlie taught a lot of us, myself, Manny Ramirez, guys that came up through the system is okay. First of all, we're going to be a hitter first. And then as we progress, you know, and, and the thing for me is, is I feel fortunate that I had Charlie because he kept me to left center field as a young hitter. And then when he knew the level of play, so what happened, Booney, is we got to triple A and I was getting beat up inside. You know, the inside fastball was just crushing me. And I was, I was fighting balls off, couldn't get the, you know, the barrel out. We call it the head of the bat out. And so, so Charlie, made a bold move and put me on the plate and put my back foot close to home plate, opened me up, opened my hips up. And I'll never forget the day he did this. We were in Scranton and we came out and hit early. And I'll never forget the feeling I had when I started to pull the ball, it was like no other. And, and one of the things that Charlie always talked about was a little means a lot, whether it's for the positive or it's for the negative. And a little bit, that little tweak, you know, in AAA tweaked me and it got me, it got my hips. And, you know, and Ted Williams talks about this, by the way, his hips and hands. And it freed me up like, like I had never, you know, it was almost something. I, I felt like I was a good hitter. But what he did with that, it, it just felt so good. And, and that was kind of the beginning of, and also, also it was the beginning of me learning how to hit the ball out front of the plate comfortable and not letting balls beat me, not letting the ball get so deep on the plate that I had to fight it off. He taught, we would go out and we would hit 3-0 you know, he would say, okay, guys, we're going to hit 3-0 today. And how are we going to do this? We're going to do it by hitting the ball up front comfortably without rushing to the fastball. And I just, I feel so blessed and lucky that I had a guy like that that truly cared. And then, you know, and then I had to go do it. You know, I had to go out and do the work and get it done, but it was nice to have a have a coach and a hitting guy that really, really pulled for you. 
Andre Reed, we're switching it up a little bit. This is mostly a, a baseball podcast, but I'd like to bring my football friends in too. I got to ask Andre Reed about his experience of going to the gold jacket dinner. And he sneaks in a Gail Sayers story. When I got inducted to the hall in 2014, besides meeting Jim Brown, and I'm in a, you know, at the Super Bowl, they have a gold jacket dinner. So you got a hundred gold jackets in there, the greatest players that ever played the game. Wow. And my first year, uh, after my first year, I go to the Super Bowl and I'm at the gold jacket dinner with my gold jacket on. And I walk in and I'm like, what am, what am I doing here? <laughs> Believe it or not, I really, I thought about it. I'm like, do I even belong here? I just was like, no, I, this is not. And I had to pinch myself with like, this is not real. That I shouldn't even be in this room. And that's, that's not being, I just shouldn't be in here. I mean, there's a big word for it. I just can't think of that word right now, but I shouldn't be in this room. And Gail Sayers was one of the first guys that I, he came up to me and introduced himself to me. And I remember my dad was a big Bears fan. He, Gail Sayers was, out, was, his, was his dude. And to meet Gail Sayers, man, I was like meeting royalty, man. I was just like, I, I was ready to turn around and walk out and say, I, I don't belong in here. Mike Cameron, one of my best buddies in this game, a smile that lights up a room, a pro's pro. And I asked Cammy what it's like to keep that even keel. We, we play in a game that there's a lot of highs and a lot of lows. Cammy was at as even keel as I've ever seen. I asked him about it. We talk about professionals being too high, too low. You are always the same. Yeah, I, at Mooney, I just really think that it, it was a gift given to me because of the love of the game, the challenge of the game, um, understanding how I was able to improve year to year from the minor leagues. I was an 18th rounder. I wasn't even supposed to be playing in the big leagues. But the year-to-year improvement and understanding that each day as a baseball player at the highest level, I got a chance as long as I'm at the ballpark. And I just figured that every day is a new day. And with that being said, I'm pretty sure we're probably going to talk about it later in this segment. If you recall, remember, I was, we were struggling at the end of the month of April of 2002. And I remember that. Month turned over, <laughs> as soon as the new month turned over, I had four homers in a game, man. So, I don't, you know, like, it just it, – there's just so much that can happen in the game of baseball uh, on a day-to-day basis where I always felt like um, my mental state and my mental capacity was if it was a new day, then baseball has not dictated where I, where I was going to have a bad day or not yet. And I was going to be – I was joyful because I really uh, cherished – I really um, appreciated seeing my name on the back of a big league jersey, man. Every day I was appreciative of the opportunity that I got a chance to do it. Riddick Bowe, former heavyweight champion of the world. I got a chance to sit down with him. Probably my most interesting podcast. Got me outside my comfort zone. And I asked Riddick what the outcome would have been of a Bo tyson matchup. What would have happened if Riddick Bowen is prime hooked up with Mike Tyson? Well, let's do it this way. I beat Holyfield 
two times, and he beat Mike Tyson two times. Do the math. I would have beat Mike Tyson. <laughs> See, a guy like Mike Tyson, he knows who has his number. And like Holyfield, <clears throat> and like Holyfield, and I would have knocked him out, so he just avoided me. So he was very smart with me, you know, in doing that in, in his career because I would have destroyed him. Think about it. I got a, a pretty good jab. I'm not intimidated. So I think those those two things they they played a big part. Well, he think we on Billy Boy's not intimidated, so we're gonna go get somebody else, and that that's what he did in my book. Marty Brenneman, the voice of the Reds, uh, probably one of my most interesting podcasts. Marty's got a lot to say. Very opinionated, and that's why I love him. I asked him a question about Johnny Bench. I think you'll be interested at the answer. Johnny Bench. All right, I want you to listen carefully to what I say now, because I, the, my, my line is that people don't listen. But you hear people say, I listen, but no, you don't. You don't listen. Uh, <laughs> he's the greatest player at a given position in the history of the game. The greatest player at a given position in the history of the game. And people say, when I speak to groups, not the greatest player in the game. I said, that's not what I said, clown. I said, at a given <laughs> position. I just use that for your purpose. I love it. <laughs> You've got, yeah, he, always, he, it's a footnote. That's, that's Mr. Boone's line. That's Mr. Boone's line that I've, I've used eloquently over the years. In fact, I've used it on the radio at times. Um, <laughs> he, uh, he revolutionized the way the position was played. Uh, he came to the big leagues. I think he was still a teenager in the late eighties, uh, late sixties when they brought him up. And from day one, he, he, he was in charge. Uh, he would be on the receiving end of some very good pitchers, Jim Maloney being one of them. And, and Jim's a dear friend of mine, uh, lives in Fresno and, and he will tell stories of how bench would take over a ball game and he's still wet behind the ears, but he was so assertive and so confident in his ability to call a game and deal psychologically with a pitcher in the middle of a comeback by the other team that he won everybody over. And uh, he had the greatest flair for the dramatic, uh, I think, of any player I've ever seen in terms of getting a big hit at a time in which the team needed it. And uh, I really believe that Johnny retired before his time, and I think he retired because he was sick of losing. Uh, he had been a vital part of the Big Red Machine, but then in the early 80s, this team fell on hard times. And for a couple of years, if they weren't the worst, if it wasn't the worst team in baseball, it was awfully close. And I just think he got tired of getting beat on a regular basis, and he felt like it was time to go. And and I respected that because for a guy that was on arguably one of the top two or three teams in the history of baseball and to have to go through getting beat every night, I just think it got too much for him. And he's another guy who, uh, in terms of retiring, uh, I don't think he ever looked back. I think he, he quit and he knew he wanted to quit and he knew he had other things he wanted to do. And, um, and, and I respected the fact that he, he never regretted making the decision to walk away from the game. Podcast welcome Chipper Jones, uh, one of the best overall players I ever played with. I got a chance to play with him in 1999. He won the MVP. I asked Chipper that day that he got that phone call from the Hall of Fame what that was like. 
You're never a Hall of Famer until you get that phone call. But was there that moment where it really seeped in that, wow, I just got the call? Oh, yeah. I think every guy has that moment. You know, I didn't really let myself think about it that much uh, leading up to it because, you know, quite honestly, it's it's out of your control. You don't really – things that are out of your control, I'm, I'm not going to spend a, a, a lot of brain power worrying about it, to be honest with you. Um, I knew that there were 400 people on this planet that, you know, whether or not I make it into the, the hall of fame, it's, it's on them. It's not on me. I put the, the best resume that I could out there. And if it's good enough, man, great. If it's not, I'm okay with it, you know? So, um, but the fact to, to, to sit back and, and watch, how it all unfolded and my wife will tell you, you know, we never really talked about it until maybe Christmas time. I think, uh, I got, I got the call January 20th and, and we maybe had a conversation about it right around Christmas, New Year's. I mean, other than that, yeah, it wasn't really talked about. Um, a lot of people, you know, all my buddies were saying, Hey man, congratulations. You're going into the hall of fame, but until you, you know, get that call and they say, buddy, you got 97% of the votes, you know, amongst 400 plus voters. I mean, that's, 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 I mean, I can't even explain to you what that means to me. You know I mean? It's 23 years in pro boss, 19 years in the big leagues. It's, you know, uh, being a part of 14 division championships, it's, it's riding the coattails of the big three, Maddox, Lavin, and Smoltz. Not only that, Bobby Cox and John Scherholtz in the managerial post and the, and the front office. I mean, it's a lot of people that go into, um, me garnering this position. So, um, and, and not to mention the, the teammates, you know, such as yourself that, that hit in front of me and hit behind me and helped me do all the things that I was able to do. Josh Donaldson, a guy I got to know when I was with the Oakland A's, uh, interesting guy, very smart, prepares as well as any young player I've seen and kind of invented the term launch angle. He was one of the first to talk about it. See what he says when I put it to him on the podcast. Tell me about launch angle. Well, so the launch angle for me, like I've been more oppressed, uh, vocal about guys hitting the ball in the air. You know, for me growing up, uh, and, and Booty, I'm not going to speak for you, but I, I would assume that it was kind of be somewhat of what I was taught is a good at bat was if you hit something hard on the ground. Uh, and that was the focus for, to me, I'm not a burner. And, and honestly, you go look at the numbers, major league average for balls hit on the ground is, I haven't checked it for this year, but it's predominantly under 200 for major league average throughout the season, throughout all, all the balls put in play. I actually got it from when I got fitted uh, for golf clubs for the first time. And I'm sitting there, I'm hitting my driver on the launch monitor and he's sitting there telling me, he's like, Hey man, like 
we're going to try to get you at this spin. And if you can hit it at this degree of launch off the tee, you're going to maximize your distance. And I said, he said that to me and I go, what, I go, what the hell did you just say to me? I can, there's like a certain degree of where I could maximize, uh, how far I hit it. And he's like, yeah, this is, this is it right there. And sure enough, I started hitting it and I just started launching golf balls. And I go, man, I'm like, I want to be able to do this in the game. Like as far as my baseball career. And part of that is having a positive, um, a positive impact swing. So as Ted Williams said in his book, I wish I would have read it when I was a kid growing up. Cause maybe I would have got onto it before that. Barry Larkin. My double play partner for five years in Cincinnati. It was great catching up with Barry. Uh, man, we fought a lot of wars together. And I got to ask him, as captain of the Reds, why did he take the C off his uniform? Actually, Booney, when he traded you, because I was having conversations with Jim Bowden, and when Jim Bowden traded you, that's actually when I took the C off my jersey. I don't know if you know that or not. And I got a lot of stuff, a lot of negative press for that. But I remember going to him and talking to him about what we were doing in the postseason that you and I, he was going to build the team around you and I. We were going to be the pillars of the organization. And then the next day or next week, he ends up trading you. And it just, I just, I I was the fit to be tied at that time. Of course, I was still a young man raging on emotion at that time as far as the where I felt the organization was going. And we were so good together, so good together. It was like, OK, we're going to we're going to. And this is the conversation I had with him. So you're telling me we're going to build this this team around Booney and my stuff. Yes, that's what we're going to do. And of course, things change and whatever. And, and he told me there was, you know, some things that he couldn't control. And, you know, but I was just a fit to be tied. And I actually took the C off my jersey at that particular time because I, I didn't feel like we were all on the same page anymore. And last but not least, I got to sit down with my dad and interview him. I, I didn't know what to expect. I've had a million conversations with him, but never in this format. It was probably my favorite podcast of 2020. Here it is. A lot of interesting, fun stuff, but let's go back to the beginning. And I just want you to set up for the audience what what it was like uh, growing up with Grandpa, Ray Boone, and, and uh, your childhood. Well, ironically, it's exactly like your childhood. <laughs> uh, your mom and I raised you exactly like my mom and dad raised me, and we were around the same exact things, driving <laughs> driving to spring training uh, every January and February, and then heading to where my dad started in Cleveland. And we'd be there. I saw I saw the first uh, uh, the first World Series I saw was in 1947. I was uh, I was about uh, a year old, uh, just under. I was about nine, eight months old when 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 Dad played played for the Cleveland Indians in the World Series. I think he got one at bat and struck out. But uh, 
Uh, that was the first one. After that, it was just a lot of baseball for a long time. Thanks for joining us for this special year-end edition of the Boone Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and leave us a rating for the show. You can also be a part of the podcast by tweeting at the Boone 29 with questions for our mailbag. I'm Dan Levy on behalf of Brett and all of us here at the Boone Podcast. Thanks for listening, and we wish you a very happy and safe new year.